I'd like to explore with you this evening how we practice metta in our everyday lives uh, in the world. And I'd like to invite us to begin with a reflection, with a silent reflection for each of us to reflect on what you would find most helpful in bringing our retreat practice into your everyday lives. What single thing would be most helpful for you? Could be really anything, could be a practice, uh, support, an understanding, See what comes to you. And bring that uh, reflection of the one thing that would be most helpful for you into a word or a phrase or a short sentence. And I'd like to invite just uh, a few of us to say your word, her phrase, her short sentence, and I'll repeat, uh, I'll repeat them. Anyone like to say what came to you? Please. I thought either pause, but then I thought breathe. So pause. And then meet this moment as a friend. Yeah, pause, breathe, meet this moment as a friend. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Jude, please. Common humanity. Yeah. Uh, please. Uh, yeah. Anger arising at other drivers. Anger arising at other drivers. Please. Um, reaching out to teachers to have kind of deeper relationships with my teachers. Reaching out to teachers to have deeper relationships with teachers. Thank you. And none of these, I expect, are copyrighted, so you could take these as your own. And we maybe should have a, a list like we have the gratitude list, right? <laughs> are, you, are you up for another? <laughs> no, that would be useful. Please. I created a dance form for my metta. So doing my dance. Doing the dance form for your metta, for my metta, yeah. Please. Continuity of practice. Great. Please. Keep the faith. faith. (laughs) Yeah, please, Edwin. Uh, Stopping the train of reactivity in conversation. Stopping the train of reactivity in conversation. Yeah, these are are beautiful. uh, These are the chapters in a book on (laughs) practicing metta in the world. (laughs) 
maybe one or two more, please. Yeah. Keep it fresh. Keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Please. Remember. Remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe last, Kate. Mm-hmm. Smile. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> Smile. Great. So these these are wonderful, and I will uh, add a few of my own suggestions, and lo- a lot of. Uh, a lot of what I would say would echo what's been said. And it, it would be beautiful, actually, to have the list of everyone here. Really? Wouldn't that be something? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Okay, we'll, we'll see if we want to do something practical, but for right now I'm going to intend to give a talk. <laughs> okay. um, so it's not hard to see if we're observant that there are signs that the nature of the retreat is changing. And we're about to begin what we often call the second half of the retreat, which begins at 11 a.m. tomorrow. The second half of the retreat is advanced practice. And It's um, actually where our lives are. Last spring, I gave a series of talks on deepening daily life practice, which has been a very dear topic for me and I'm sure for many or most of us. And one of the talks was transcribed and uh, published in the current Spirit Rock newsletter. And it came under the title of the most important of all possible spiritual topics, (laughs) which was a little how I started the talk. They didn't know what I was going to talk about. And I said, today we will explore the most important of all possible spiritual topics. What do you think it is? You know, and people guessed karma or suffering or freedom or, you know, impermanence or compassion or whatever. And I said, you know, it's actually how to make this real in our lives. How to bring a lot of what we've tasted in retreat and have a connection and continuity with our daily lives. And this is not easy for all sorts of reasons, but it's possible. And their way, all we really want to do is to keep uh, doing our best, really. That's what practice is. With the experience of a retreat, we have the sense of sustained invitation of that intention to kindness, to meet the moment as a friend, And it's uh, something which will stay with us forever. That sense of uh, possibility. This is from a friend and one of the teachers at Spirit Rock, Temple Smith, who uh, did a long meta retreat at a certain point. And and I, um, I actually did an interview with him at a certain point. And he said, he said this 
about some of the effects of a, of a retreat, a meta retreat. I remember sitting in the Berkeley Hills after the retreat. I could see all of Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. In the past, I had seen myself as a nature lover. Urban settings typically got my mind going in negative directions. But this time I had a different thought looking at this large urban area. Oh my God, so many people to love, so many people I can see. In the past, I would usually look at cars and feel bad about pollution. But I thought, I can see individual people going about their lives. It's not abstract. I can really take in millions of people in this view, and I can really, I really do wish the best for every single one of them. What I found was that these thoughts didn't just come and go. Rather, they stayed and grew. I felt energy coming into my mind and body about how to be in the Bay Area and relate to that many people. To practice metta was, for me, a strong and clear indicator of what the heart's potential is. It changed so many of my views about the world. Previously, I had a huge list, like Sylvia's list. (laughs) I had a huge list about what was bad about humanity. My list of what was good was uh, pretty short. After the retreat, I could more readily see the beauty in people, being very touched by the beauty of watching a father holding his daughter while she slept on public transportation. To be relatively free of aversion for the period of time of the retreat changed my whole motivation for activism, which previously had been fueled by anger, frustration, and judgment. Metta changed all that. And so how do we, how do we have uh, what uh, the Tibetan practitioner Shabkar spoke about as letting one's life and practice be one. How do we do that? How do we do that in this world with Twitter and electronics and the newspapers and, and, and um, massive suffering in different parts of the world? How do we do that? You know, there are traditional responses. Uh, Dr. Harris was kind enough to give me some of the uh, pages from a, a book by the Burmese teacher Upandita, uh, The State of Mind Called Beautiful, which is about metta practice. And in that, it's said that there are three main forms of metta practice. There's the practice that we do on the cushion, the formal practice. There is metta practice that's through our words and our, our communication. And there's meta practice that's through our action. And I like that that's a very traditional understanding. And I want to talk really about a variant of that. I want to talk about uh, what we might call the widening circles of our meta practice. First talk about individual practice, then talk about our relational practice, and then talk about uh, meta practice in the larger world. And I want to read a a beautiful poem, which some of you know, by Rilke, uh, the the poem called, uh, uh, I Live My Life in Widening Circles. Some of you know this. This is really the spirit of metta, and it really comes out in terms of the sequence of instructions and how we 
move as we were exploring this morning with Larry into metta for all beings. This is Rilke. This is from about, uh, this is right from about 1900. I think he was about 25 years old when he wrote this. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete the last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm or a great song? So first, uh, some words about our individual practice, the practice that we do on the cushion or really relating to our own minds and hearts and bodies. And first it's important to say um, something that we usually say the last morning, which is that uh, it's very um, much the spirit of metta to um, as much as possible, not do too much after you leave Spirit Rock. To not take in, to, if you can, err on the side of less stimulation, less activity, to the extent that that's possible. It may not be entirely possible. Some of you may have um, family reunions <laughs> tomorrow or Sunday or, you know, whatever. But um, we like to say that you're much more open and sensitive than you realize. You may have felt that in our short period of talking. And and really helpful to uh, know that and take care of oneself. If you can find periods of silence, if you have choices, I would make them towards not not, uh, being part of too much activity Be careful when you download your emails. (laughs) Consider waiting a day or two. If you have the power to not do too much, maybe for many of us till we work on Monday, that's really going to be kind to you and it'll help a lot with continuity and with really bringing the retreat more fully into uh, daily life. I like to think of our individual Uh, practice in terms of different kinds of supports that really uh, help the meta practice keep going. Uh, I I like to think of inner supports and outer supports. The inner supports are more what we do individually and the outer supports are how we find community, teachers, mentors, friends, and so forth. So I'll talk some about both of those. I, like a number of teachers, think that it's a very good practice to know when your next retreat is. It actually settles the mind. So consider that. (laughs) Uh, And retreats can play a very important role. Uh, Periodically going into retreat, as many or most of us know, uh, there's a beautiful way that we um, have this uh, inner exploration and protected environment and then we come out and test it in our lives and test it in the world 
and very crucial. The Buddha talked very frequently about the value of testing our understanding and not just being in a cocoon, not just being so protected that when we get exposed to certain stimuli, we um, have a very hard time. There's one line in a, in a famous text uh, called the simile of the saw where the Buddha says, some practitioner seems extremely kind and gentle and wise, but no disagreeable courses of speech are reaching that person. However, it is only when disagreeable courses of speech reach that person that we really know whether there is wisdom and ease and gentleness. And he was encouraging that sense of testing. We can go back and forth and we want the kind of testing that uh, helps us stretch or that is kind of plays with our edge. You know, that is, uh, you know, in terms of the scale of 10, maybe in the four to seven or eight range. There's a wonderful theory of learning which says that there are three zones. There's the comfort zone, the discomfort zone, and the overwhelm or panic zone. (laughs) Guess where we learn the most? The second, right? The second. We learn the most in where it's kind of difficult, but we're not overwhelmed. That's really crucial to remember because when we're overwhelmed, it's actually better to withdraw from that situation if we can, as best we can. One practice that I've been doing for most of the last 30 years is a practice of a Sabbath. It's like a mini retreat. And I do mine mostly on Wednesdays, (laughs) not traditional. (laughs) And it, as I sometimes say, helps me keep my busy social life intact. (laughs) That's a joke. I often, uh, Sylvia and I share the teaching on Wednesday mornings, typically here at Spirit Rock. And uh, I, when I'm here, which is almost half the time, I come, I teach in the morning. I typically have lunch with my mom and, 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 then, uh, and then I practice the rest of the day. And I get to, some of you probably have seen me, I like to sit in the staff area for retreats, which is a perk and get to, and I, I, I practice for the rest of the day makes a huge difference. It doesn't have to be a day. It can be three or four hours. Done regularly, it becomes the pivot of the week, which is the idea of Sabbath, which, you know, both East and West, or the idea of that uh, pivot. It can make a huge difference, especially if it's regular, because we come back to it. And there's something in our psyche which knows we are going into that. You know, and uh, it can be very, very precious. And probably some of you have already a Sabbath practice. Doesn't have to be that long. It can be three or four hours. You might you might sit, take a walk in the forest, do some reading, sit again. That's it. Yeah. And that will have an impact. That will have a big impact on your practice. Of course, daily metta practice, very important. You probably knew I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, and 
many people like after a meta retreat to actually do meta practice uh, exclusively for a while. I've done that once after a meta retreat. I think I practiced three or four months just doing meta, and that's fine. You can do that. Uh, can also, it's very nice to alternate mindfulness and meta practice. They mingle, and we get more of that sense that we've been really encouraging of how mature metta is very mindful and wise, and mature mindfulness is filled with metta and wisdom and so forth. So you um, might want to do half and half. To keep the metta practice going, I often find that something like 10 or 15 minutes a day is necessary. And then the metta practice will keep, especially after this retreat, um, Keep it, it will keep it going and it will be available uh, at times when you need it. The 10 or 15 minutes can be in a sitting. It can be uh, in walking. It doesn't have to be in a sitting. I have a, several students whose primary form of metta is in driving. You, know, you have to work out your safety details first. <laughs> but... You know, one person is a realtor and she drives a lot. And she, she finds that she really gets into the metta groove in the, in the driving. You know, uh, can do it in various, various places. Uh, can do metta during uh, meetings, especially if you don't have an active role. I sometimes do that. You can do metta for all beings in a meeting can do it, as Larry was saying, in public transportation. Wonderful to do. Uh, Wonderful to do. Five, ten minutes here and there. Um, Other ways of what what in the the texts are called gladdening the heart are crucial and really beautiful. And there are a lot of ways to gladden the heart. And if we can have them as regular practices, it can make a big difference. One of them, I think, is is simply being with beauty. We can do that as a regular practice. Take 10 minutes a day in whatever way you choose, be with beauty. Sit with a tree outside, be with a flower, be with art, maybe be with music. Um, Be with the beauty of other beings. Be with animals. And practicing metta with non-human animals is amazing. And there can be very, very powerful experiences. You know, uh, Like Larry, I've had experiences with the non-human beings here that have been really uh, amazing. Like when we can be in the metta, have the metta field and be with animals and not have that objectifying gaze Animals really pick up on that. They know I am being objectified, I am being seen. And when we have more of the field, things shift. You know? And sometimes in practicing here, I have had deer. I once had a deer come bounding towards me from 200 feet away. It was like, uh, I still feel just saying that. It was breathtaking. It almost it brings up some of the old archetypal understandings of indigenous traditions, of times when there was a different relationship with animals, with non-human animals. You know, that's accessible. 
Gratitude practice gladdens the heart. It can be just very simple. Have a sense of what you're grateful for. Maybe write it down on a list and read it. Do it for five minutes, 10 minutes. I typically do a, a very brief gratitude practice Typically three or four times a day, I just ask, what am I grateful for right now? It takes like a minute or two. These all tend to gladden the heart and they support the the metta practice or compassion practice. For some of us might uh, really be drawn to combining the practice of metta with compassion and joy and equanimity. It's an amazing uh, set of practices. They really complement each other. From the 14th century, from Long Chenpa, one of the probably greatest of all yogis who's ever lived, amazing text if you read his writings. He wrote this, out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Intention plays an incredible role in our metta practice. And we've interpreted metta practice as an intention practice. And simply having the intention, much as we did in our short exploration of speech practice, to simply have the intention uh, to come with the spirit of metta in a conversation, in a difficult conversation, just in an encounter, just walking down the street is incredible. And we can, and setting intentions can be very crucial. I think we know that intentions guarantee nothing <laughs> about the next moment, right? <laughs> we can have the intention and the next moment it is out the window. <laughs> Maybe not out the window, but it's not dominant. But I would say intentions don't guarantee anything, but they help a lot. And so, Uh, having an intention before a difficult conversation to come with the spirit of metta, to have the intention in the morning, may my day come with the spirit of metta. If something difficult happens to me and I'm getting down on myself, can I remember metta and come with the spirit of metta, you know, to meet the moment as uh, fully and as a friend. Metta practice can have this devotional quality. Sylvia sometimes has talked about metta. I should say I'm very pleased. Sylvia is my metta mentor. (laughs) And uh, just had a wonderful time really uh, just learning so much about metta. And I remember we had about three years where we would just talk about metta at seven-day retreats all the time. And it was, and I took notes. (laughs) It was very wonderful. And and there's a devotional quality in some people's metta are like lullabies, you know, that uh, really bring out the heart in that way. Julia Butterfly Hill has a practice, is my action coming out of love? that she asked continually. You know, Julie, you know who she is, Julie Butterfly Hill, who sat in the tree north of here for two years and uh, you know, has still you know, stayed very active and is a practitioner. You know. 
one of my close friends puts on her answering machine after you know, all the information, please leave your message and be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. <laughs> puts that on her answering machine. I wanted to add a further word about metta as a purification process. It is that way, you know, that uh, metta both lets us be more with that uh, beautiful energy of metta, and it also brings up for us to look at that which is not metta, that which stands in the way of metta, and that which we may not have even have known was there very much. Sometimes we call aspects of that the shadow, you know, or that which we don't know well, or that which we've tended to suppress in our being. And that can come up, and there can be moments that are um, surprising or startling, or some energy comes up. And in retreats, sometimes there can be uh, inexplicable emotions that come up. And I think we probably know that, just that come up without stories. And we really just want to stay with everything and minimize the reactivity. Oh, a surprising, inexplicable, (laughs) intense anger. Oh yes, anger. (laughs) Let me feel it, let me be with it, but not to, not to, as it were, make it worse than it is, not to add horseradish to the gefilte fish. That is actually one of the key principles <laughs> of all of spiritual practice. <laughs> it's actually one of my favorite teachings, and the Buddha, t- the Buddha taught it, but using slightly different language. <laughs> Which is that something difficult is there, can we just be with it without the commentary, the reaction, the tensing, that three hours of trying to make it go away and blaming ourselves, blaming others. Can we just be with something as best we can? That is a deep practice, an incredible daily life practice. One of the energies that can come up with metta and and has come up for many people is the energy that I, I call the judgmental mind. And it can be quite strong. Metta practice is an amazing way to work with it. It can come up in all sorts of ways, and sometimes in metta practice, our judgmental mind and what lies beneath it become more apparent. It's part of the purification process. We notice maybe the voice, we notice the critical voice about ourselves or about others. We can feel sometimes in a kind of a fog. Our deepest judgments can take us over so it's like a fog or a trance. Do you know that sometimes? Negative, negative judgments. And part of our practice is really to track them, to know that they're there, to become familiar with them to study them, 
so that we know them well. We can study them sometimes by being aware of the body. You know, I know when I've studied myself, I've sometimes noticed if I would be pretty judgmental, my chest would tend to uh, collapse some, my shoulders would come in, there'd be tension in my body. And studying how the judgments formed in my being, uh, and especially at the level of the body, the main storylines, the narratives, very, very crucial. And sometimes I would notice how the body was before I could notice the storylines. Very interesting. And so you can really study them, know what they're like. Um, This is a cartoon uh, called Rhymes with Orange, which explores the different ways that judgments appear. Six frames. First, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to that person. (laughs) Number two, examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. (laughs) Number three, relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. (laughs) Number four, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Number five, disregard all compliments. (laughs) Especially from people who supposedly love you. And it shows a frame of a woman talking with someone else and the other person says, you look great. And the woman says, don't patronize me. And then resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. And so that can be, for some of us, for periods of time, it can be a very crucial practice to track the judgmental mind. And um, it's an area that uh, has been very important in my own practice. Uh, And I I did an intensive period of work over a number of years. And at the end of that, I started offering uh, day-longs and since then have have led retreats on the the theme. And it's a very uh, powerful... Uh, topic, and I have found that when I now work with people, I think of there being two main ways to work with judgments. One is more the side of mindfulness, inquiry, studying them, what's it like in the body, recognize them, being able to notice them as quickly as possible so we don't get trapped in them. And that's a fruit of mindfulness. And there's some deeper ways that we can go beneath the judgments to see sometimes what Um, what generate them. Often what we sometimes call core beliefs that can, many of which, some of which come from the culture, some of which come from uh, family upbringing, some of them come from difficult experiences and so forth. And the second area that I find really crucial are developing the heart practices like metta, where we can really live uh, increasingly in that kind heart so that we come to know it more and more as uh, at least how we are a lot of the time. And we find in the working with people that there may be as much transformation in working with metta and other heart practices than in actually going into it, working with it, getting into the trenches and so forth with the judgments. That there's a way in which as we do more metta practice, we transform the judgmental mind, not so much by quote unquote defeating it, 
or even working through it, but by shifting the center of gravity to metta. It's actually an interesting metaphor for social change. I think social change can be very similar, right? We don't, you know, that's where in Dr. King talked about the beloved community. So we shift, sometimes things change more because we start living in a different way and it just becomes clearly better than the old way. Yeah, so a lot more could be said there. There are also the outer supports of community. They're the inner supports of our own practice and uh, all the areas that I've mentioned. And there are the outer supports of community, working with mentors or teachers, study, having friends or buddies. If there's someone at this retreat that you connect with, consider being a metta buddy with the person. Maybe you send an email or a text every few days about saying, I did my 10 minutes of metta. You know, there are apps these days that you know, can let people know that you've meditated. We could have, I mean, I'm not gonna organize this, but <laughs> there could be a whole metta community app where people suddenly know that other people have done their 10 minutes of metta or whatever, and it's supportive. You know, find your own way. Or find one person here who you, maybe you telephone for 20 minutes once a week, whatever. Find those kind of supports. Sometimes in our meta retreats, there have been people who've initiated monthly meta groups where people meet for three hours, do meta practice, talk about how their practice is going, maybe have a potluck. Anyone feels like organizing it? You can use the bulletin board. <laughs> let, let us know. That, some of those have come out of this retreat, out of our meta retreats. Maybe one last comment um, about individual practice. I find that grounding in the body is very important for meta practice. We've talked some about that grounding in the body. I know this partly from my own experience, you know. As I mentioned in the other talk about knowing I was somewhat sensitive because of my response to James Dean movies <laughs> and, and other movies. I also sometimes cried and, at drivers at movies. <laughs> and and, and um, you know, many of us may have our hearts quite a bit opened and have clarity and I know for myself, I could have a wide open heart. And until I was uh, more grounded in my body and could connect with the earth, I could be very open and be knocked around a lot. I think most of us probably know that, right? And there's something about that grounding and centering that's very crucial. So you might find that by really emphasizing awareness of the body, maybe a body practice like yoga or qigong, and find ways that you can really develop that center. You know, the martial arts talk about the center being around the belly or the hara in Japanese or the tantian in Chinese. And I have found that really crucial. You know, so we're really looking to develop that, um, that sense of groundedness and connection so there can be some stability and groundedness when the heart is really affected. And if that's not there, sometimes the heart gets affected and we're swept away and knocked around. 
It's interesting. I, I find that quite important. Bringing metta practice into our relational lives It's such a great area, you know, and we can start with bringing metta into, you know, public transportation, meetings, uh, public places. Go stand on a street corner and offer metta to passersby. Right? It's amazing. There's you know, the potential is really uh, unlimited. Driving. Um, after that retreat that I mentioned in the other talk, a, a long metta retreat. I had a few days when I was at the retreat when I needed to download emails and I had quite a few uh, weeks of emails and, and I downloaded them. I think there were like 400 and I was still on retreat. I had been doing meta for five weeks and I found that uh, there was no way the meta stopped during the emails. And out of that, I evolved a practice, which I think other people have done as well, where I with every email, I do meta practice. I try to do four phrases internally to the person I'm about to send it to. And I usually put something in the body of the email. And I try to vary it so that friends don't find it too obnoxious. But I usually say something like, I hope this is finding you well, or it is find you well, or several of you have got emails from me and you know this practice. And um, and it makes a difference. You know, one of, one of the challenging areas is how to be with electronic media and not just be totally in a virtual world. How do, you, how do we keep our practice there? This is one way. It slows us down a little bit, but not that much. You might consider that just to bring, find your own way. Um, it also brings us into the body, so we're not quite so disembodied in, in electronic uh, uh, worlds. Speech practice is such a great venue for metta. And I mentioned earlier today that in the basic guidelines for speech practice, really metta is one of the four guidelines. It's taken as something that um, for skillful speech needs to be there. And so we can, we can intend that uh, way of speaking, speaking with metta. There was a set of questions posed to um, children who were uh, four to eight years old about what does love mean? And one of the respondents, Billy, age four, talked about skillful speech. He didn't use that word. (laughs) He said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know your name is safe in their mouth. And speech can be an amazing practice. And as I was suggesting earlier, intention can play a big role with speech. Having some sense of the body, even if it's 5 or 10% of our awareness, like just the hands on the knees, can take us out of the purely mental realm or the domination by the mental realm, what I sometimes call the the domination of the automatic mind. 
and can really be tremendously, tremendously helpful. Things happen quickly in speech, right? There was a New Yorker cartoon of a woman standing in front of a couch talking to what looked like a police detective. Behind the couch was a police officer and also behind the couch were a set of legs uh, belonging to a body apparently lying on the floor. And what she said to the detective was this, he misspoke, I misheard, shots rang out. (laughs) Do you know that one? (laughs) And so speech practice is amazing. You know, we can work with kindness. A practice that can be tremendously helpful in speech practice is developing empathy. It can be a full-fledged practice. And there are different ways of, of doing it. One of the ways that I find very, very helpful is to learn through practice to tune in as best we can to the feelings or emotions of the other person and our sense of what matters. And that can be a regular ongoing practice. That is one way of bringing metta in a very uh, fairly clear and even uh, rigorous way into our speech so that we tune in in that way. And so just in, in very ordinary experience, like when I Sometimes when I work with this, I just might say something like, you know, it's, um, uh, and, and invite you maybe to track my feelings and sense of what matters. I might say, uh, it was so wonderful to hear the rain and see the rain and it was coming down so fast. And we just know that the, it's, the earth is so thirsty. So what were some of the emotions you heard? Joy, wonder, wonder. Empathy. yeah, let's say an emotion, excitement, excitement. Gratitude. yeah, gratitude, right, so, yeah, so, you were being empathic, Thank you. <laughs> it feels very good, I was understood, <laughs> and then, what matters for me? The earth, the health, yeah, health of the local earth, what else? Your senses, yeah, yeah. Matters to me to experience it. What else? Sense of what matters. You wanted to connect with the person. I mean, that's a intimacy for sharing that, right? You know, I was thinking of just when I was, yeah, when I was saying, yeah, just to maybe to, it matters to me to share that with you. Yeah, anything else that you just get from those words? Connection. Huh? Connection. connection. Yeah, connections. It, it's not rocket science. You know that we're, and this, I, I wanted to do that because this is a practice you can take in. This is a way to bring metta practice into very ordinary interactions, to have that sense of empathy. And it's actually uh, one of the, I've, I, I practice that a lot. And one of the surprising outcomes of empathy practice is that it actually is a kind of protection with difficult people. I find that when I can actually tune in empathically to people, I'm much less prone to take their judgmental mind at face value. 
That's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so, so in that sense, metta practice and the sense of empathy can actually help me not to uh, get caught in blaming and judgment. It's, it's, it needs practice, but it's a very, very interesting way of bringing metta practice in. Consider bringing metta practice and other heart practices in with difficult people as one of your cutting edges in your relationships. Again, maybe not the nines or tens, but people for the fours or five or sixes. And it can be very, very interesting. I'll just say one thing that I have found in terms of of quite difficult issues and relationships, I actually find that compassion practice and forgiveness practice is sometimes more effective than metta with the really difficult experiences. Partly because it takes me to the pain and something opens when I acknowledge our mutual pain. For me, it tends to be more freeing than doing metta with a difficult person with the really difficult ones. I'll just put that out there. That can be helpful. Bringing metta practice into our larger world, into the collective world, into the social world, bringing metta into our service, into our work, into our concern for the larger issues of the world. It's an incredible force. And I have to think that in the next years, with the challenges that we have of so many kinds of creating greater disparity between the haves and the have-nots, you know, intensifying racism at times, climate issues and so forth, violence. Metta is an incredible force. And I think most, many of us know that there have been these amazing beings who have seen love and metta as a force for meeting the challenges of the world. In many traditions, the, the Jewish vision of repairing the world the Christian vision of meeting everything with love. And we see that exemplified in people like Dr. King. This call for a worldwide fellowship, he says, that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all human beings. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles 
in the heart of human beings. And we, we have examples. This isn't theory, right? Or just theory. Cornell West says, justice is the public face of love. Interesting, isn't it? We had, uh, have had uh, Earth Day gatherings at Spirit Rock the last two Aprils. And I remember two years ago, uh, Paul Hawken was one of the speakers and he particularly emphasized how to be deeply grounded. Action, as it were, on behalf of the earth had to come or was, could come with most fullness out of love for the earth, which of course needs, is a kind of practice in itself to really be with and come to love the earth so that our action comes out of love. I think that's what King and Cornell West and, and Gandhi we're talking about Thich Nhat Hanh. The essence of nonviolence is love. Out of love, and he, he is just translating. He could say metta, but he think he's writing for a wider audience. <laughs> Out of love and the willingness to act selflessly, strategies, tactics, and techniques arise naturally. Other struggles may be fueled by greed, hatred, fear, or ignorance, but a nonviolent one cannot use such blind sources of energy for they will destroy those involved and also the struggle itself. Nonviolent action born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love is the most effective way to confront adversity. So I think there's actually a emerging model we might say, of a new type of person who acts in the world, who has the training of metta, of mindfulness, of wisdom, of living ethically, of dana, generosity. Of skillful knowledge of uh, social systems. understanding of ways of bringing people together. There's almost like a new toolkit developing for people who would be active in the world, who would serve in various ways. And whatever it is, whatever, whether it's as a teacher, as a therapist, as a politician, as a trainer, as a yoga teacher, all of this is really connected. So let me just close. I'll close with uh, a story and two readings. The story is one I heard from my mom. And she told me it uh, several years ago when Shirley Chisholm died. I don't know if people know Shirley Chisholm. She was the first African-American congresswoman. She was from Brooklyn. And I actually uh, got to know her some because in a previous incarnation, I worked in the US Congress. (laughs) 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 When I was in college as an intern. 
And I got to know her and she was like four foot ten. And she used to make jokes about uh, being interested in the earth because there was a tree in Brooklyn. But in 1972, she ran for uh, president. As many of you, there's a film made of this. It's quite something. And also in the race was George Wallace. The, at that time, the arch segregationist, I think segregationalist, or uh, arch proponent of segregation uh, from Alabama. Uh, I don't know if he was governor at that time, he was former governor. And um, during the campaign, there was an assassination attempt on his life, on George Wallace's life, and he was injured. And um, not long after he was shot, Shirley Chisholm went to visit him. And his first response was, your people are not going to like that you're here. And her response was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. And something must have happened, and this really, to me, points to the mysterious uh, quality of metta. Not long after that, she was Uh, one of the people um, trying to uh, work through Congress a minimum wage bill, and she needed help. And he helped her with a bunch of Southern congressmen, and the bill got through. And it's very hard to know causality, but many of you know that something shifted with George Wallace. And he later rejected his racism and spoke out and really went through a major change. Something really shifted and he he renounced his former actions and how much of that was um, set in motion by that one moment of metta? It's hard to know. It's hard to know, but something, um, something was beautiful. Something happened. And our meta practice is mysterious. You know, like some of the stories we've had of it's dry and then all of a sudden, I love you. <laughs> which, which several of you told me very similar things have been happening this week. It's dry and then suddenly, ah. So remember that, it's mysterious practice. It can have profound impact. One moment can have profound impact. It's very precious. Maybe I'll I'll finish just with uh, one of my favorite readings. This is from Thomas Merton. And this is from 
the uh, Catholic contemplative. He had a moment of what we would call profound metta right after a dentist appointment. <laughs> he was, you know, he was a, uh, a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, uh, about 45 minutes south of Louisville, or as they say, Louisville. And I'm actually going to go to the monastery in about three weeks. I, I typically go there once a year. I, I lived in Kentucky for four years and developed, uh, went there a lot. Anyway, that's another story. Um, and he, he had gone to the dentist, and then something just opened up. And he was uh, in the middle of the city, and I'll, I'll end with this. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and eyes theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could each see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So remember your one key that came at the beginning of the talk, your one key to uh, bringing the metta into the world. And may we all uh, um, compare notes as we find ways to bring this practice into our world. And thank you for your um, kind attention. We'll, in a moment, we'll have some uh, walking and then uh, come back for the sitting and chanting. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.